her body was discovered in a nearby wooded area. She was stabbed 19 times and left for dead where two adults have been shot to death. 143 people have been murdered. Hundreds more have been shot. She had been stabbed to death. It was the bloodiest thing I think I've ever been to. Welcome back to another episode of Dark and Deadly. We're your hosts. I am Haley. And I'm Gina. And we are going to be, well, Gina's going to be talking about part two of the yogurt shop murders. And I don't think we have really any business to talk about before we begin. We covered um, the update on Eric Lee Franks last time, and there hasn't really been anything else uh, going on with that case. So I guess we'll just go ahead and get started. Yeah, we can dive right in. Okay. So just kind of as a, a mini recap, um, last episode, we covered that on December 6th of 1991 at a Austin, Texas, I can't believe it's yogurt. A horrible murder occurred, just horribly horrific. We covered the initial discovery of the crime scene and the background info on the young girls. So you, like we said, if you missed that episode, go listen to that first and then come back to this one because you definitely need to know what happened there to understand what happened here. Right. Okay. So let's lay, get the lay of the land. So the crime scene is kind of where we left off. So the ICBY was robbed. $540 was taken from the cash register. So either the money was taken because this was a robbery gone wrong, or the money was taken to make it look like this was the robbery that went just wrong. And I don't know, I'm of the mind that it's the latter. I agree. I think it was just like they went into there to do what they did. And I think it was just a crime of like an opportunity for them to take money in addition to what they did. Well, and it it was just so horrific and it felt more planned out to me than like spree. We're going in to just do this. And like the weird customers that were in the store and the people that were like, Hey, this guy was weird. He was nervous. I don't know what happened with him. He went into the back. I don't know. Right. Do you know what Anyways. they were? This is a probably horrendous thing to ask, but do you know what they were bound with? Was it like uh, materials that they had at the store? So no. Well, it was it was their clothing. Okay. That they were bound and gagged with. Not good. So and and keep in mind the timing of everything. So at it, at eleven o three, Eliza had rung in that no sale. So. 1103, we have her opening the till, presumably when the money was taken, I would, I would assume that. And that's kind of what the cops were thinking too. Um, the arson investigator put the start of the fire at 1142 and the rookie cop had noticed that the fire had was going on and had called that in at 1148. So between 1103, when we're assuming that's when the cash register was open, because that's the only log that has happened of that happening and 1142, four murders happened at least at least one sexual assault and the place was set afire like that's such a small amount of time so small that's scary i mean i take longer scrolling on tiktok most times <laughs> right. what it took to cause that much mayhem when the lead detective surveyed the crime scene this is kind of what he saw so the women uh young women gagged and bound with their own clothing naked and stacked on top of each other 
And it, they weren't so much like one on top of each other. And on our Instagram post, we, for last week, we had put the layout of the store and that included where the girls had ended up when the cops had gone into the crime scene. And they weren't so much stacked on top of each other, but it almost looked like one of the girls was pushed just slightly to the side, maybe by like a fire hose or when the fire was going, she just, her body went to the side, but so it's not like one on top of the other, if that makes sense. And on the layout, you can see um, that one of the girls, which was Amy, was further away from the others and her body had been less damaged by the fire. So they were actually able to get somewhat of an ID on her and they could tell more things about how, what had happened to her during the crime. Do you Which think is, she tried to escape? Well, they couldn't, they couldn't tell that. So one thing I read and I don't know how much I trust it, um, was that she potentially was alive by the time that the fire got there, the fire crew, or people have theorized that she was crawling away. It's, it's unknown for sure. And they can't get a good, I believe, time of death on her. It was hard to tell for them to determine if she was crawling away or if she was placed away for a different reason. Jennifer, Eliza, and Sarah had all been shot in the head with a 22 at um, a somewhat close range. They described it as execution style. Amy, who was the one that crawled away, and this kind of supports that crawling away theory, is that she had been shot twice once in the temple, like the other girls. Um, but the second shot came from a different gun. The second bullet that they believe would have been the one that killed her was from a 380. So we now have a second gun for certain. That's devastating. That's what would make sense to me is I don't know why they would have one girl separated off. Like it sounds like to me that it's a possibility that she was trying to get away and they took her out for a second time. I mean, that would be, that would be my initial guess. Yeah. That's terrible. So Amy is the one that they saw the obvious signs of sexual assault at the crime scene as well. So She had a, um, her thighs were spread and she had an ice cream scoop that was pointed up between her legs. So immediately they, they knew that there was some type of rape kit needing to be happened. And this is kind of where we we're going to start seeing some deviations from like normal protocol. They did rape key rape kits at the crime scene, which I, from my reading is pretty of like a rare occurrence that typically happens at the ME's office. Um, and because of where Amy's body was and how much further away from the, um, initial place where the fire started, which was right next to the girls, her body was less burned and they could tell that she had been strangulated. So they're assuming that that's also what happened to the other girls, but they can't for sure determine their bodies were horribly mangled and they did not weather the burns to their body well and amy was the youngest one right amy was 13 yes oh that's so So, bad yeah so the ages of the girl eliza and jennifer were 17 sarah was 15 and amy was 13 so on that layout that we have on our instagram page you can see where the fire starts and it's at the shelves that are located near the back alley door. And it's the ones that are closest to the bodies. They're these metal industrial shelves where they 
started the fire on them. From my research, they could see that the women had been covered in chocolate sauce. The women that were in a pile, so Jennifer, Eliza, and Sarah, their bodies had been, for whatever reason, the killers had put um, chocolate sauce on them. They put yogurt around their bodies, and they couldn't quite tell if that was them trying to contaminate whatever evidence was left over or if it was some kind of um, like disrespectful last thing that they did to their bodies. Right. But I can that- see it both ways. It, it also kind of depends on if these people are like, if they're, if it was more than one person, I'm assuming, well, it had to, well, I'm assuming it had to be because there was two different guns and how could one person take four women, you know, but right. I, read a tiny bit when I was just looking up photos of the girls, uh, when we last ended the podcast and it's kind of up for discussion of whether or not this is, these are people who have committed crimes before because of how well kind of that they covered their tracks and left no evidence behind. Yes. And we do have the FBI profile of who they think the suspects were that I'll read off here in a bit. But I mean, the things that they did to the bodies, covering them in chocolate sauce and yogurt like that, that's a going to get into blood and that contaminates the blood, whatever blood's on the, you know, the floor. If it gets onto whatever samples, I mean, that contaminates everything. Yeah. It's smart. Yeah. And I don't know. They, I, they did it so fast. That's just what boggles my mind. It incredibly quick. There was uh, very little hesitation in any of this. Yeah. So it had to have been thought out at least a little bit. Some type of planning in my opinion. And we have those people that hung out in the store. Yeah. That were there for hours. I mean, you have those people that were there that were for the most part, it seemed like casing it. Yeah. Very suspicious. Oh, very much so. So let's talk about a few mistakes in the investigation because there were a few. Um, It sounds like there were some issues between the Emmy's office and the detectives. And from everything I read, it pretty much stemmed from the fact that Jones demanded that the rape kits be done at the scene instead of following that normal protocol uh, with the Emmy's office and doing it, you know, where they're located. And because that was so far out of protocol, it really rubbed the Emmy techs the wrong way. And it started to create some friction. The one of the most notable things that the Emmy's office didn't do, and no one's quite sure why they didn't do it. They did not swab any of the girls to see if accelerant had been used on them. So they have no idea. The, um, none of the fire, um, fire department people, firefighters, could not think of that word. None of the firefighters could smell any accelerant when they were at the crime scene, but you have hoses in there. You have smoke. I mean, you can miss some accelerant if they didn't use much, but they used some. Right. So there's kind of the first issue, the crime teams, the crime scene tech who was really new. I think that they had done one other job, one other crime scene before this one. Uh, missed quite a lot. So the bathroom that the nervous guy went into in the first episode was never dusted for fingerprints. The lock on the bathroom door uh, or on the back door going into the alley uh, went missing and they were never able to check if it had been tampered with. They didn't save materials uh, that were close to the girls in the back either. 
that would have been crucial pieces to, you know, test. So the crime scene they tech. Just, they just let rookie crime scene techs out on their own for big cases like this? Well, that's kind of all they had. It Austin was smaller, smaller and yeah, and that's, I mean, that's resources that they had available to them. Oh, that's terrible. Yeah, because I right? guess the, finger, the fingerprints in the bathroom would have been a big one for sure. Oh, huge. And by the time that, you know, they had even thought it's too late yeah. and it's gone. So we are going to jump around for just a second. So in the days after the murder and everything was televised and people were pouring tips in and there was a reward for, for you know, the capture of whoever did this, a tip came into the police to look into a young high school aged boy who was seen at the same mall Sarah and Amy were at before they headed over to ICBY. Maurice Pierce was seen with a 22 caliber handgun at the mall that night. So he was showing it off to people that he had this handgun and somebody took notice and was like, Hey, that kid had a handgun. Hey, those girls were killed with a 22 caliber handgun weird so you know it got called in and rightfully so yeah and so pierce was with three of his friends at the mall michael scott robert springsteen and michael scott i know the the rest of this me investigating all this each time i heard michael scott i just heard like michael scott michael scott and i was just (laughs) office um two different people when Jones and another detective that was working with Jones on this case, Mike Huckabee, Huckabee questioned the boys. Nothing ended up coming from it, the tip, because when Pierce's gun was tested, the ballistics showed it did not match the murder weapon. So same caliber gun, just not the same gun. Okay. That is suspicious. Um, so why is a teenager walking around with a gun at them all? I got it from his friend's. Oh my god. And was walking around trying to be cool kid. Cool. <laughs> yep. 16-year-old boy. Yep. So, and just like that, Detective Jones and Huckabee went through all the tips they received. They went through and diligently like talked to everyone that they could. Years had passed by. And initially, the really awesome thing that the I can't believe it's yogurt and something I want to call out. Um, Bryce Foods, the company that owned it. They put together a $25,000 reward for information leading to the arrest and conviction of those that had committed the crime. So good on Bryce Foods for yeah, no kidding. putting up a reward to figure out what happened to these girls. I just, I think that's really nice. <laughs> Maybe that's yeah. me thinking very lowly of companies. What? No, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty amazing of them to do because they weren't obligated to do that, but I'm no. sure it also has affected their business of what happened. Uh, the shop um, never reopened. Yeah. So that did affect their business. But because of that reward, they had like roughly 300 tips in total. And they went through all the names off their list. They checked everything. And it just didn't lead to anything. And like what happens when any case starts to grow cold, detectives are moved off of it. They have to go and work other cases they bring new people in fresh sets of eyes and the the sad thing is that this case really affected jones and i don't think that he ever really got over it yeah it's kind of like i think 
all detectives have like that one case it goes unsolved where they think about it constantly true and then after they retire i'm sure it's just so disappointing that they didn't get to close that one case that they wanted to oh yeah fully um but some of the good things is that they had early on help from the fbi and the fbi really stepped in and tried to help them solve this and like i said here's that profile that they had created so the things that they wanted them to be on the lookout for was um someone who had less than a high school education had somewhat of a history of discipline problems so anger issues substance abuse issues um acting out being rambunctious uh doesn't care about the ramifications of their you know decisions doesn't think that far yeah and they're more likely to avoid fights or confrontations that he may lose so if he knows he's going to lose he's not going to pick that fight uh more than likely had a history of unemployment so would get uh, get a job lose that job have to change a job frequently couldn't get a job couldn't keep one that type of thing more than likely still lived at home with his parents had a criminal record a history of being abusive towards friends and loved ones was more than likely very familiar with the area around the yoga shop so probably someone in that somewhere in that vicinity uh and more than likely took very little pride in their personal appearance and I mean, to me, these just sound like a kid that's struggling, yeah. that is having a hard time figuring out their life. So in 1999, in comes Hector, uh, I'm going to butcher this, Polanco. Uh, he had a nickname of El Diablo within the community, which he was very proud of. And Polanco had some knowledge of the case because he was around in 91 and worked for APBD at the time. So was around, he, he was aware of who like the suspects were. He was kind of aware of that they had these four boys that they had called in and nothing happened with it. And when he took over the case, he was like, no, 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 no. It's those four boys. And he hardcore started down that path of fully saying these boys are the ones that did it. And yeah. that's, I mean, you can't do that. It gets a bit shady. No, you can't. It's what we call coercion. And right. that's exactly what happened. So I have an interview that I would like to play in full for as much in full as we can before getting into like copyright issues of the interviews that happened because they are, it's bad. At some point where he's handing his, that revolver, what does he say to you? Either shoot him or you're next. That's what he said. Because I didn't want to do it. Right. Either shoot him or you're next. What what do you remember hearing then? I remember looking at this girl. I cry. I hear Robert saying, do it, do it. I hear the gun go off. I only pulled the trigger once. I turn around. Use your stupid gun. What happens next, Mike? That brought back some memories, didn't it? I remember looking at the gun. You ever seen that gun before? I'm not positive. Does that look like a gun you've seen before? It looks like a gun I've seen before, but I'm not positive. Is that the gun you shot somebody with, Mike? 
I don't. Is that the gun you walked up behind somebody with and shot in the head? Is that the one? Talk to me, Mike. Yes, sir. You did that, didn't you? Yes, sir. We've just opened some more doors, haven't we, Mike? Not really. You sure? Yes, sir. So it should be noted when he's saying that part about the gun, the detective's holding a 22 in his hand. Right. So he he's in this interrogation room with this detective and it's hours and hours and hours and hours and hours. The guy has a gun in his hand. He's trying to get him to say what happened. He's leading the, like totally leading the confession it gets worse. Scott at one point asked for a lawyer and the detective for a bit came back and kept asking him questions. And Michael didn't say anything about a lawyer again. Cause I mean, he's being interrogated. He asked for a lawyer. He came back, didn't have a lawyer. And he just assumed, I guess I don't get a lawyer and kept answering their questions and thinking if I answer their questions, I can get out of here. And then I can figure it out after that, which I think is what happens a lot of time in confessions is there like, I will just say what I need to say so I can get out of this situation and I'll figure it out once I get out of here and like yeah. can get a lawyer and talk to my family. The issue though is that Scott confessed. He gave him a full confession and it worked. And from this confe- confession, they were able to bring in the other four and were able to get Springsteen to confess as well. So Wellborn and Pierce both stayed adamant that they had absolutely nothing to do with this. They were nowhere near there. They didn't do it. Like, what is going on? But Springsteen and Scott confessed. Which, based off the boys' confession, they're all in trouble now. Um, And here's here's kind of what the cops recreated um, as the timeline now that they had these confessions. So shortly before closing time, one of the boys had gone inside the yogurt shop to scope it out and unlocked the back door. Wellborn, they thought, had remained outside as the lookout, while the other three went inside and proceeded to sexually assault at least two of the victims and murder all four. So this is what they put together and said, oops, they did it. Here's how everything happened. And the case closed. That was it. So the guy that was standing in line that was the cop or the security guard was sketchy about, is that one of the guys? Like, did he positively identify him as one of them? No. Okay. No, there was, there was no physical evidence and no. And keep in mind, this is now years later. Yeah. They ruled those boys out in 91 of being suspects because nothing added up. So like, case closed so the cops thought like oh we wrap this up it's all done case closed we're wiping our hands of this uh official official charges were pressed against the four boys and the community of course felt better because they're like finally we have an answer for what happened all those years ago it was these boys right except the charges against pierce would be dropped due to the fact that they had absolutely zero zilch nada physical evidence that he was at the scene of the crime they didn't have anything to link him there wellborn went through two different grand juries who refused to indict him and the state decided to drop those charges as well because they couldn't get a grand jury to press charges 
So two of the boys are now no longer being charged because one, they couldn't get um, any physical evidence at this at the scene of the crime linking him to Warren because they said he was outside. Grand jury was going to indict him on shaky evidence. But because the other two boys had confessed, even though they recanted because they had confessed, charges are officially brought against them and they go to trial and they are convicted. But remember, this case is unsolved. Right. So in 2006 and 2007, both Scott and Springsteen get their sentences overturned because their lawyers did not let them come into their trials um, and confront their accusers. So essentially what this means, is a constitutional right where if you are, you know, somebody's coming in and confessing, saying he did it, you as a citizen of the United States have the right to confront the person who is accusing you of that case closed. You have that right. And because each of the boys and their confessions linked the other to the crime, they would have the right to interrogate that other person. But because each boy was saying like, Hey, I didn't do this. I recanted my confession. I didn't do it. Neither defense team wanted to bring him in if they had the chance of trying to like point the finger at the other. And because this would throughout their case, they didn't let the boys come in to um, testify. So this created this reason that they could get their their cases thrown out and their charges against them thrown out. So both cases are now thrown out. The the kind of crappy thing about that though, is that even, even though both men had their, their charges dropped against them, because the state was given the opportunity to ring like repress charges, the boys had to remain in custody. They, they okay. weren't allowed to leave prison. So they've been in prison for at this point, like hmm, math, eight years had to remain in prison, even though they got their charges, their sentences dropped, which to me feels insane. I'm like, if they, so what's the get point? It, <laughs> Exactly. They're still remaining there. So the defense team did something that was pretty smart. They requested that all of the evidence be retested against new technology that they had available to them. Yeah. And guess what? The evidence showed that there was at least one unknown male sample that didn't match any of the four boys. So we just have a man walking around out there that. Oh yeah. Did his one crime and then stopped, I guess. Right. Or if something else happened. Or didn't get caught. Exactly. So, and you would think this would mean that the DA would be like, okay, we have this other person. Like, it obviously wasn't them. We're going to let it go. The DA decided to create this scenario where there's this whole other person that was there with them. Even though no other fifth, like there was never a fifth person um, mentioned in any of the confessions there was never a fifth person that hung out with them. Like it was the four of them. And so the DA went ahead with this, with this like holy Swiss cheese of a case and thinking that they're going to bring press charges against them, except they pulled the jury and seven of the jurors from the trials have stated that they would have not convicted the men had the DNA evidence been available at the time. So 
that like forced the state's hands and they decided to not repress charges because yeah. the jurors like we wouldn't have convicted them if we knew there was this DNA that didn't match any of them. Like that doesn't make sense. Right, um, cause you're supposed to turn without a reasonable doubt. Right. It's exactly the DA and it's because they, their sentences were dropped. The DA can still recharge these men in the future. Additional testing has been done like since on these additional items from the crime scene and a second unknown man's DNA was found on those items. So now they have two unknown men DNA and this is kind of nothing's really happened much since Uh, the latest update that I have for this case is the, you know, a la the golden state killer solving a case type of way. They of course did what everyone's doing now and sent some DNA into a university of Florida genetic database system and they got a hit. But of course there's a catch. The database Mm -hmm. system that they use to get the match does not allow law enforcement officials to use the database because people submit their DNA to this specific database anonymously. Oh yeah. I almost just peed my pants though, too, because I'm sitting in Hunter's room and there's a big ass deer in my front yard. (laughs) I thought I was about to be murdered. Oh my God. There's two. (gasps) Oh my God. I'm going to send you a picture of these. Yes, please. <laughs> I about shit my pants, Gina. I'm not even kidding. Sorry. Continue. <laughs> um, I mean, that's really that's all I have. So that was 2017, and there's an ongoing battle between the state of Texas and FBI about this because it's it's a federal law. So in it's a part of a 1994 federal law that they can't get information from the specific database because of Florida Florida's privacy laws. So. <sighs> I don't know why they haven't submitted it to other DNA databases or genetic DNA. Like there's so many now. Um, I mean, ultimately the outcomes is not ideal. Uh, There's still three families that lost their daughters and don't know what her, who did it. And the case is still unsolved. So that's what I have for you. Well, that's frustrating. Very. So unbelievably frustrating. So did I, okay. Did I miss it? Did, did any of those four have DNA at the crime scene? No. Okay. That's what I thought. So that kind of reminds me of the devil's knot case. Have you the West Memphis three? No, I haven't. But I've okay. seen like documentaries about it. I just haven't researched it. You should watch The Devil's Knot. That is a really frustrating one. I don't think they did it. And they are really, yeah, and they serve time for it. I hate that. I absolutely hate that. Me too. But, and it was, I mean, it was exactly kind of like this. Like they, they chose those people and that's who they were going after regardless of evidence. Might you guys just get tunnel vision and you have they to just want right? to convict somebody. And so like, it doesn't even matter to them if that's the right person or not, because they just want that, I guess, pride of knowing that they convicted somebody, but that's not, that's not right. No, no, it's, it's sad. 
you can ruin someone's life. And even yeah. if it comes out that they didn't do it, there's still, there's still somebody that's going to say, mm, nope, I think they did. Right. And that's sad. Bunch of witch hunters is what it is. Yes, ma'am. Well, that was great. I'm going to, yeah, I'm going to have to like look more into that one too, because that's insane. There's so much, I don't know. There's just so much information and it's like, you, you go into this case even more confused than, you know what I'm trying to say? I'm like mind boggled at the moment, but like no, you, I totally you come get out it. of it I... with more questions than you do answers. Well, and I, I honestly could have probably done like another third part of it. There's a great novel. Um, and I mentioned her on the first podcast and let me pull it up. The book is who killed these girls. And it's by, um, Beverly Lowry. Highly suggest reading it. She goes into such amazing detail about this case. Um, and, it's just the fact that it's still unsolved is heartbreaking for these women or these women, they're girls, these girls. Yeah. I know I keep saying women too, but they are their children. They're children. Oh my and gosh. I just 13 to 17. Horrible, horrible for their families, especially the one family lost two of their daughters. How devastating. Yep. yep. How do you recover? You don't. You don't. <laughs> it's nope. so sad. So if you have any additional information, please contact the um, Texas, I believe it's Texas Police Department, but I will have the correct numbers on our Instagram page for who's leading the investigation. Yeah, don't forget to follow. Any tip will help. Yeah, don't forget to follow our Instagram. We post a lot of important information to our cases and then also updates on any cases have a new podcast go live it will be on there first so go ahead and like our like and follow at dark and deadly pod and then we also have a gmail dark and deadly pod at gmail.com then we also have a tiktok dark and deadly pod so that just ruined my saturday night (laughs) i'm sorry it's okay we chose this this because it is we did we did All right. Well, you'll be listening to this on a Monday. Maybe. I mean, we'll be posting it on a Monday and then we'll have our regular Monday uploads from here on out, hopefully. And then next Monday, I will be covering a case about twisted twins. So that'll be interesting, but we hope everybody has a great week, a great weekend. If you're listening to this on the weekend, And don't forget to follow us on all of our socials. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thanks.